In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Kurt Vonnegut, prolific author of the last century. Anybody read any Kurt Vonnegut? I honestly haven't read any of his books yet. Um, Kurt Vonnegut called himself a Christ-loving atheist. He had no place for religion, but he had a place for Jesus. In fact, um, uh, even as a Christ-loving atheist, a a friend of Kurt Vonnegut's at one point uh, returned to the faith of his youth, returned to the church, and Kurt Vonnegut calls him and leaves a message on his answering machine with only six words. This is Kurt. I forgive you. Because he just couldn't believe that somebody would actually buy into this. And yet, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, for all of his aversion uh, to things regarding religion, uh, there was one text of Scripture one segment in the New Testament that he could never shake. One set of passages that he was most bewildered why people wouldn't want to put those up in public places rather than the Ten Commandments. And those words were the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount finds its way into many of the characters and plot lines of his works, apparently. Such that At one point, Kurt Vonnegut even said this about the Sermon on the Mount. If Christ hadn't delivered the Sermon on the Mount with its message of mercy and pity, I wouldn't want to be a human being. I would just as soon be a rattlesnake. Here's a guy that has no place for faith, but says, like, I'm glad that that word is in the world because that's what holds me together. That's Kurt Vonnegut. J.K. Rowling, you may know her name. She wrote all the Harry Potter stuff. In a very candid interview she once gave, she said the entirety of the Harry Potter series could be based on two Bible verses. One of which is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, the last enemy is death. But the other verse that forms the very backbone of the series is a text that is inscribed on the grave of Albus Dumbledore's sister in Godric's Hollow. And that inscription is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the Sermon on the Mount. Mahatma Gandhi said the Sermon on the Mount was the most profound words any human had ever uttered, and it cut him to the heart, and he thought that most of the world's problems would be resolved if only we would embrace it. And a name that you might hear bandied about kind of every once in a while, people either hate him or love him or are mostly confused by him, but his name is Jordan Peterson. He's a clinical psychologist. He's from Canada. But he says, if we will be honest with ourselves, Western civilization was founded upon the Sermon on the Mount and that you will hear no higher good outlined than in what you find in those passages. That's why we are calling this series, as we transition into this new year, the highest good. We're going to listen to the Sermon on the Mount. For one reason, because in all my time with you, in my almost year and a half, we've never taken up a gospel. It's time. Give me Jesus. We're going to do that for the next several months, because it's the highest good. But as soon as I say the words that the Sermon on the Mount represents the highest good, I've got to be really clear about what I mean and what I don't mean. Because when you talk about words that outline the highest good, it's more important for us to know not just what is being said, but who it is that said them. Because when you hear me say the highest good, you might immediately begin to think, oh my gosh, I have to ascend this hill, and it's all about me trudging up a way to find it. Folks, friends, Christ-loving atheists who might be among us, 
you will never understand the Sermon on the Mount as the highest good until you see him as our greatest good. Until we all begin to see him for what he has done on our behalf that we could not do for ourselves, about how he embodied the highest good before he ever called us to a good. We have to see him thusly. And hopefully by the end of this series, even by the end of this sermon today, you will see why we have to see him first as our greatest good before we would ever think about what he is and what he outlines as the highest good. Okay, I've given you reasons why to listen to the series. Now I want to give you a short reason on why I want you to lean in to how he begins the whole Sermon on the Mount. The reason you should listen is because though I am not a mind reader, every single one of you in this room has a theory of happiness. If I followed you for a week or for a month, if you followed me for a week or for a month, we would have insight into one another's belief about what makes you happy and what keeps you happy. I've put out a word to the students of this church, and I've already gotten some responses back, for you to ask your kids and capture it on video, what makes you happy and what makes somebody stay happy? Send them in. I've already got several responses. Send them my way. I want to see it. Videotape it. Send it. You know how to get it. We're going to let kids tell us what it is. Every one of you has a theory of happiness. So do I. And most of the time we're insensible to it. But here's the thing about our theory of happiness. Life happens and we are reminded over and over again that our theory of happiness, whatever it might be, doesn't really hold up. Our experience of happiness falls short. Why? In part, because we tie our demonstrations, we tie our happiness to a set of expectations that we think will make us happy. And then when they don't live up to those expectations, the world falls apart. Which is why I quoted to you on Christmas Eve, that comedian who says, everything is amazing and yet nobody is happy. Why is that? Because we tie our happiness to a set of expectations that we never get to. Like we believe that everybody's got to like us or everybody's got to agree with us or everything's got to follow suit or we should never have to suffer. And then life happens. We go, none of those are possible. It's one reason why we're not happy. But the, the bigger reason why we're not happy is the whole aim of our life. We, we have a different aim. We maybe have the wrong aim. And isn't it ironic that the, one of the pillars upon which our nation was built was what? The pursuit of happiness. That's like, that's what we're supposed to do. C.S. Lewis said, there's something fundamentally flawed with that idea. And though he didn't use the word happiness, he did use the word comfort. And he said this, in religion, as, I'm sorry, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. If it, you make it your life's aim to be happy, don't be surprised if it doesn't turn out like you wanted. But if you make your life's aim to find the truth, happiness might be a wonderful byproduct. We want to listen to what Jesus has to say about truth. And the way we're going to begin is the way he starts this very curious sermon with these things called beatitudes that all start with blessed are fill in the blank. What's at the bottom of every one of those beatitudes is Jesus's preliminary answer to our question about happiness. And as you hear them, you're going to think, well, that's a curious list of things that might involve my happiness. What is he getting at? Oh, 
That's what we want to unpack today. We're only going to listen to one verse. And in that one verse, we're going to consider what is the meaning of happiness according to Jesus. What is the beginning of our happiness? So if you will, I might have you stand. Lolly Weymouth is going to come read us the first three verses of the passage. Would you stand? Wait. John, I'll try it. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's my uh, hope that we will have another student up here reading one of the Beatitudes every week, and then at the end, we get them all up here, and they're going to recite it from memory. <laughs> and then put all of you to shame. I had Lolly read the first two verses before we get into the content of the sermon for obvious reasons about what, why is the Sermon on the Mount called the Sermon on the Mount? Well, because Jesus ascends a mountain, and then he sits down to teach. But why does he do that? Is it because, like, he's trying to project? Like, is this thing on? Can you hear me? That's not why he's doing it. Especially if he goes up onto a mountain and then sits down. Jesus is telegraphing us something. He's telegraphing the Jews, the disciples who are there listening. There was somebody else that once ascended a mountain to bring some truth, and that guy was Moses. But what distinguishes Moses from Jesus is that Moses went up to get and then deliver. Jesus went up to utter it, to speak it. And so for him to ascend a mountain and then to sit down like a rabbi in a posture of teaching, he's there to speak with a certain level of authority. Which sounds really nutty if he's just some guy. If he's just some guy that has read a lot. Because it's rather arrogant for someone to say, I'm going to go up here on the mountain and then sit down and teach you all. Oh, really? At the beginning of the sermon, he's just talking to his disciples. But by the end of chapter 7... The crowds are there, and they're all marveling at one thing. They're astonished at the authority with which he speaks. But he begins that sermon atop the mountain in the seated position by talking to us in these things that have come to be known as the Beatitudes that all start with blessed are fill in the blank. And the question is, what does he mean by blessedness? Because even these first three Beatitudes Makes you think, ah, I'm not sure he's getting it because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek. You know, not exactly a list I would sign up for. And you're saying blessedness is related to that? Happiness is related to that? In fact, it is. What does he mean, therefore, by blessedness? What does he mean by happiness here? Let me tell you. Here's the, here's the one technical part of the sermon. Everybody get a deep breath. We're going to deep dive for just a second. It only lasts about 90 seconds. Every time Jesus says the word blessed in these Beatitudes, it's the Greek word makarios. And behind that word is a particular Hebrew word that's in Jesus' mind when he says it. Because in the Old Testament, there are two words that are typically translated as blessed. One of them is the word barak. You may have heard that word before. Blessed 
is God actively blessing people. They do something, they follow in his way, and he blesses them. That's the word barak. That's not the word in Jesus' mind here. The other Hebrew word for blessed is the word asrei. And it's this idea of having found, having been gripped by something, and then walking in the way of what you've been gripped by. And so we began this worship service, a call to worship from Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who, fill in the blank, that word for blessed, it's that second word, asrei. That's the word in Jesus' mind when he starts talking about blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Whatever poor in spirit means, don't worry, we'll get to that. The point that he is making is this. There is something that will come over us, that will grasp us, that we will find ourselves in its grip and something will follow from it. And that is what it means to be happy. That's what it means to be blessed. These are not tasks that we are assigned. Go out and push yourself to be poor in spirit. You're misreading it if you're putting like that. If I do this, then, then God will bless me. No, no. These words for blessedness means something has come over you. Something has awakened in you. You are gripped by it, and then you walk in a certain way. Uh, one commentator on this text, trying to help us understand what blessed is, says you've got to go down under to understand it. And I have a, a friend of mine who's now a, who took a pastorate recently in Australia, and I texted him to get confirmation of this adage. But there are fra- there's a phrase that you use in Australia in a certain way when you notice somebody that's made a good choice and you feel like, yeah, you've really connected with it there. And they'll say, aye, good on you, mate. Good on you, right? Oh, you took your wife out on a Friday when there was a day off? Good on you. It's this sense in which something has, you've you've demonstrated that something is connected with you and you are walking in that way. That's what it means to be blessed. You have found a place of fruitfulness, which is why we read Psalm 1. Those who are blessed are like a tree planted by a spring of water. If you want to maybe a little bit more vivid illustration of what it means to be blessed, what it means to be happy. um, uh, There aren't too many stagnant pools around Asheville right now. Everything's kind of over its banks. But if you have ever walked on a hike near a stagnant pond, you know exactly what it's like. It's foamy. It's like these bubbles with people that never wash their hair. It has the stench. If you're a fish, you are in the wrong pond. Because the algae is going to grow and the CO2 is going to be liberated and you will be suffocated. That's what a stagnant pond does. But contrast a stagnant pond with a running stream. There's noise. There's life. It's teeming. If you're a salmon in the pond, you are swimming freely. Now, you might get eaten by a bear, but by God, you will have fulfilled your purpose. But there in that rushing stream, there's life. It's conducive with life. To be happy, to be blessed, as Jesus is speaking of it and using that word, is to find yourself in the middle of the life-giving stream. It's to have found yourself in a place of Human flourishing. Not in the woeful place of a stagnant pond, but in the life-giving place, the flourishing place of a running stream. That's the place of happiness. That's what blessedness is, which makes it all the more curious for what Jesus says is the blessed state of being. He's given to us the meaning of happiness, but now he wants to talk to us about where happiness begins And it begins in a most curious place. He says, blessed are those, blessed are the what? The poor 
in spirit. What? Poor in spirit is the beginning of happiness? That doesn't sound very happy. That sounds downright despairing or grumpy. That, that sounds like Ben on any given morning before he has coffee. We all have to like, rub his tummy and then, and then he's no longer grumpy. Okay, I exaggerate. That's not what poor in spirit is. No, blessedness. If there was ever a word that has been um, reshaped and refashioned for a long time, it's the word blessed in our day, right? Um, there was a time in the Middle Ages when blessed, you know, they bless you when you sneezed because they were worried that when you sneezed, a good spirit came out. So they wanted to make sure no evil spirit came in you. Oh, bless you, right? And then if you're in the South, uh, you say, oh, bless his heart, right? The, the little Southern nicety that is uh, typically translated as what an idiot. And, <laughs> right? and, then there's, and then there's hashtag blessed, right? Because, you know, you bought your wife the Lamborghini and I'm, I'm living the blessed life. And that's kind of where it is. Jesus is saying, no, no, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does he mean by that? Now, you've got to remember, whatever sermons Jesus gave, including the Sermon on the Mount, they were things that he said that he probably said on multiple occasions in multiple places and probably would tweak it every time depending on the, the audience that he was in. So this is Matthew's recounting of several sayings of Jesus. But Luke does the same thing. And when Luke records what Jesus said in one of his versions of that sermon, in that version, Jesus just says, blessed are the poor, full stop. Blessed are the poor, full stop. Why would he say that? Jesus' very first sermon in Luke chapter 4, he comes and quotes Isaiah, who says, I've come to preach good news to whom? To the poor. And Jesus says, that's happening and I'm him. Which almost gets him run out of rail or worse. Blessed are the poor. Why, why would he say that? It's not, he's not saying blessed are you who are poor because you're poor. Like it's good that you don't know where your next meal is coming from. He told his disciples, go out and serve the poor. Mitigate their circumstances. He's not, he's not saying blessed are the poor because they are poor. He's saying blessed are the poor in part. Because when you're poor, at least you are under no illusions that you are something. Because in that day, if you're poor, a lot of that or a lot of those were interpreted as you must be under God's curse or you must have done something really stupid or you must be outside of God's blessing or esteem. And Jesus is saying, you misunderstand, you oversimplify. No, no, I've come to remind everybody that God has come to preach good news to the poor. And at least the poor are under no illusions of really being self-important. You, you drive up here to I-26 and Airport Boulevard. Those folks that are asking for money, I, I can assure you of one thing that they're not. They are not arrogant. They are under no illusions that they're the best thing since sliced bread. And the thing Jesus is coming to confront when he, when he says these words in Luke's gospel is there to say, don't let your financial status ever lead you to believe that that is necessarily a demonstration of God's esteem. In fact, he has great regard for the poor. And blessed are they who are under no illusions that they are something on account of them having nothing. Now, that's Luke's version. Obviously, Matthew adds a little tweak. He remembers a little nuance that Jesus adds. And what nuance that was is blessed are the poor in spirit. How does that change it? 
Oh, it certainly borrows apart from what it means to be physically destitute. It's in part talking about how those who are poor in spirit are are cleansed of the illusion of self-importance. But when Matthew remembers Jesus adding in spirit to his sermon, it adds this sense. It means that when you come before God, you come before him essentially broke. That you have no purchase with God on account of anything that is in you or on account of anything that you have done. You are empty pocketed and empty handed before him. Which also means that when you come before God, you have absolutely nothing to commend yourself to him and everything that might ordinarily be considered an offense before him. You are that broke. You are poor in spirit because you have nothing to offer. You have no gifts that impress him. You have no skills that would lead him to to think of you differently. You have no achievements that would oblige him to reward you. You're empty handed. When you think of yourself in that way, you think of yourself very differently than when you think of yourself as something. Um, And in fact, if if you want to know, if you want to feel what it means to be impoverished of spirit, you just have to keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount. Somebody asked C.S. Lewis once, um, you ever enjoy reading the Sermon on the Mount? And C.S. Lewis said, well, um, sure, I enjoy it. If by enjoyment you mean getting hit in the face with a sledgehammer. If that's enjoyable to you, then, you know, more power to you. The Sermon on the Mount will confirm to us all just how unspiritually impoverished we are because it will speak to every hot button that we struggle with. We hate, we lust, we curse, we don't want to forgive, we're greedy, we're full of anxiety, we want to be seen, we want people to think that we matter, we're full of hypocrisy. Everything that we struggle with, Jesus has come to speak to us in a particular way, and thank God it's Jesus who's saying it to us because you don't want anybody saying everything that he said apart from the one who said it. I don't know who um, Clarice Lispector is. I just know that she's a Brazilian writer of the last century, but she said something pretty insightful by in one sentence about what it means to think of yourself as a human. She said this, who has not asked himself at some time or other, am I a monster or is this just what it means to be a person? Yeah, she gets it. She gets it. The clearest illustration about what it means to be impoverished of spirit, you might find it in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisee is the one that went to Sunday school, went to Hebrew school, you know, nailed Phi Beta Kappa of the Jewish establishment, right? Tax collector, essentially a pawn of the Roman Empire, uh, the closest thing to a tow truck driver in our day, probably. One that's most likely to be cursed, that is. In that story, right? Pharisees. Pharisee walks into the temple, looks up into heaven, and says, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men. And then he rattles off this resume of things that speak of his own piety that he thinks commends himself to God. And with great confidence, he says that with open hands and open eyes. That's the Pharisee, the tax collector. He won't even come into the center of the temple courts. He stays at the corner. He's afraid to come in and he won't even lift his head up. He keeps his eyes to the ground. And there the tax collector says, oh, Lord. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. 
And that parable ends with Jesus saying, it's this one that goes home to his house justified. It's this one who gets it. It's this one who understands he has nothing to bring God, to impress God, to commend himself to God. It's this one that demonstrates what it means to be poor in spirit. And that's where our happiness begins, Jesus is saying. And you hear that and you go, oh, that's all good and well. But to believe that really is hard, like really hard, like like all the time hard. For a couple reasons. One is you and I instinctively want to make an impression. When we were kids, we just did what we wanted to do. We just existed. And what we said is what we thought all the time. What we wanted, you saw. There was never any ambiguity. I can't tell if he's hungry. No, no, he's definitely hungry. That's what we were when we were kids. And then when we get older, though, we kind of learn away. We give off something. We, we portray ourselves in a certain way. And if, if the way we portray ourselves kind of gets us the kind of approval or something that we dig, we keep doing that, whether it's true of us or not. We want to make an impression. Do any of you remember this BBC series back in the late 70s, early 80s called um, Keeping Up Appearances? Remember that? Yeah. The, uh, the, the main character of the, of the comedy is a woman named Hyacinth Bucket. But she insists that people refer to her as Hyacinth Bouquet. Right? The whole series is her repeated tiresome events to sort of um, distance herself from her her uh, lower-income, blue-collar family, just to sort of give off every impression that she is upper crust, that she is everything, that she is the bee's knees, the whole shebang. And the whole plot line of the series is, despite every single effort to make an impression, to keep up an appearance, family shows up and gives a lie to everything that she tries. Just fails every single time. And we all laugh. And it was a great comedy that lasted for years. But folks, it may be a comedy on television, but it's a tragedy in life. Because we do it. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut said, um, we are who we pretend to be, so we must be careful who we pretend to be. We all want to make an impression. We hear that we're to be poor in spirit, and yet we don't believe that. And so we go out to make an impression. And it exhausts us. And it's why our kids get depressed and worse, because they feel like they can't live up to the expectations that are put on them. It's why people who are in vocations for years have these sudden meltdowns because they've concealed their weaknesses for so long. It's why we don't confess our sins to one another. Because we want to make an impression. And it's an enslavement. The other reason it's hard for us to believe is not only because we want to make an impression, it's also because we want to prove that we matter. Um, I read an article last week about a 20-something. Her name is Juliana Piscors. She's in her 20s. She wrote an article saying, um, my quarter-life crisis. She said, I appear to have it all. I'm healthy, with a good job, close friends, and a loving if dysfunctional family, and yet I feel lost, as do the people around me. And she listens to a a psychologist who says to her, one feature of religious belief is that your value is intrinsic rather than based upon performance or image, he explains. And as we move away from a religion-based society, young people are looking towards their careers to validate their sense of self. 
And then Juliana says, for my generation, work, not prayer, has become my personal project. It's not just true of 20-somethings. It's true of 40-somethings. I don't care what vocation you're in. I don't care what age you are. There's something that somebody says to you that whispers in your ear, you've got to prove to justify your existence on this world. Look, uh, I'll be straight up with you. Uh, this will be no shock to you. I'm a Tim Keller groupie. I-, I can show you the latitude and longitude of where I was when I heard him say rather um, confidently, he was meditating on this famous passage in Habakkuk 2 that says, he who is righteous by faith shall live. And the thought occurred to him, he who is righteous by preaching shall die every Sunday. Fill in your own blank. The way you prove, the way you matter. I can tell you that Jesus' beginning of happiness is to believe that you're impoverished of spirit. But if you don't believe that, then you will try to make an impression and prove that you matter. Poverty of spirit is to believe that you are under no illusion that you can make an impression and that you are under no illusion that you can prove that you matter, especially to God. Why? Why is that, though, a picture of blessedness? Why is that a profile blessedness? It's not something you aspire to. It's not something you go and do. It's not a task that you accomplish. So why is it a picture of this blessedness, this happiness that Jesus speaks of? That all has to do with the third thing Jesus is talking about. Not only the meaning of happiness, not only the beginning of happiness, but the basis for your happiness. And Jesus would say that the basis for your happiness, for those who are poor in spirit, is because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom is a word you will hear Jesus use early and often. You will hear him eventually say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. But seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's just shorthand for saying the kingdom is God's will at work in God's world. That's the kingdom. Wherever that's true, the kingdom is present. And to believe in the kingdom of heaven is to believe that that kingdom has come near to us in Jesus. The one who was born into a cradle is the one who would be crowned as a king. He is the one who is the usherer in of the kingdom. And so to believe in the kingdom of God is to believe in a reality that is both more true and more real and more beautiful and more significant than anything else that you might stake your life on. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A reality that is in part true with the coming of Jesus and a reality that will become fully in true when he returns. When you hold on to that, When you've been awakened to that, you will be poor in spirit. Because then you will see that you have nothing to bring you to God that commends you to him. There is a Japanese art form. It's called kintsukori. And it's the taking of broken shards of pottery and repairing them to their original state but by bringing, by gluing the parts together by using either gold or silver lacquer. And the idea behind it is that which you repair with that which is beautiful makes the whole piece even more beautiful than what it was before. Oh, friends, may I introduce you to the most perfect picture of what the gospel is. 
The kingdom of God is God's promise to make all things new in Jesus. But until you see your own brokenness, until you see your own need of newness, you will never bear the mark of his work upon you. That would be the basis for your happiness. What is that work? When you're a kid, you go to second grade, and on Fridays after lunch, we got to do show and tell. This is my spider. He doesn't bite. Would you like to hold him? Ah! Show and tell. Jesus inverts it because he loves to do that. He plays tell and show. In this verse, he tells us we come to him essentially bankrupt before him. When Peter first meets Jesus, the first words out of Peter's mouth are, O Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In that moment, Peter was let in on a little secret about who was in his presence. And he was realizing that the highest good was in him, embodying the highest good. And you know what? Jesus doesn't disagree with Peter's words. But neither does Jesus depart from him. Because Peter was on to something. Something was being made aware in him. And so Jesus tells him and tells us in this sermon that in fact we come to him as those without anything to commend us to him. But when he goes to his cross, then he shows us. Then he shows us how deep is that situation. You go to the cross and you look at what Jesus, what he's saying is, you know what? It really is that bad when you look at the cross, you also see you really are that loved. When you look at the cross, you realize there really is much work to be done and to be done with the help of his spirit. That's the work. That's the news. First he tells us, then he shows us. And that's the gospel. To remake us into all things new with something far more beautiful than anything we could come up with ourselves. What then, how then do you respond You just have to see yourself as he sees you. That's how you respond. The psalmist says in Psalm 103, he knows your frame. He knows you are but dust. He gets that. Stop trying to be something else. And what that means is when you see him, when you see yourself as he sees you, then like those wise men, all you can do is kneel. And like Mary, his mother All you can do is sit at his feet and get that one thing needed from him. And all you can do is that psalmist who says, be still and know that I am God. And all you can do is like that father who's at his wit's end about his afflicted child who says and cries out to him, I believe, help my unbelief. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That is how you respond But you also respond by resisting one very instinctive move that I'm I'm summarizing in a whimsical way by one chorus from the sound of music. There, Maria and the captain looking longingly into each other's eyes under the starlight there in the gazebo. They sing to each other this chorus. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. 
But somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. And we all sigh. And Rodgers and Hammerstein in that moment nailed at one thing. You're right. Nothing comes from nothing. Everything's got a cause. But the other part, they got disastrously wrong. Jesus is coming to say to us here at the beginning of this sermon, and this first word is the most important, he has come to say to us, the greatest gift you ever got, you had absolutely nothing to do with it. The greatest thing you have ever been given has absolutely nothing to do with your worthiness to receive it. And the sooner I, you and I, embrace that, the sooner that you and I might begin to find our happiness. Give me Jesus. Sing that. And so we shall. And therefore, I can't think of a more perfect ending or response to this sermon than to do what we are about to do. And that is invite a child into the sacrament of baptism. Come on up. On this day, we are acknowledging one thing before this community and this family, and that is none of us comes to Christ apart from grace. None of us would know him apart him revealing himself to us. And therefore, we depend on him not only that we might know him, but we depend on him to be our cleansing and our goodness. That there is nothing that we can do to commend ourselves to make him ours or us his. And therefore, we come in instruction by him to be baptized in his name, to identify with what he has done on our behalf. And on this day, this child comes as a consequence of being the child of believing parents in this community to enter into the waters of baptism, the sacrament of baptism. We're under, we're not arguing this day that this child is professing faith. The only thing she's professing right now is fatigue (laughs) and demonstrating it admirably. There is no pretense a part of her in part of her, but we are arguing that this day that this child is invited to these waters to be set apart and to be considered a covenant member of this body, which entitles her to all the rights and privileges thereunto to be treated as a family member of this church and to be responded to by everybody else who's a part of this community that she might know in time that she was set apart and that there may come a day, Lord willing, anticipated by this day when she comes to see her need of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus in which part she comes to profess the name of Jesus. We're not calling her a Christian today. We're not arguing that she is demonstrating faith today, but who knows? God does. But by consequence of her coming in a believing family, we bring her to these waters and to set her apart by the grace of God for the good of his people, for the good of his family. So, what is the name of this child? I'm so sorry. Yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. 
Alice Josephine Ray, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Welcome to the family, sister. This day anticipates another day, as does the tree. If you came to the night of prayer and, um, and singing on New Year's Eve, you had an opportunity to place a string on a branch for someone for whom you would pray. Not that they become part of the club, but that they might be freed from having to make an impression or to prove that they matter, but actually to find that Christ himself believes that they matter. And that in believing him, that, he, that they matter because of him, that they would take their rest and begin to find their happiness in him. That's what this moment anticipates. That's what those, each little string anticipates. And that's why we sing. And that's why we hope. And that's why we pray. And that's why we seek to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So let's pray. Father, if it is true that this is where we find our happiness, by becoming supremely humbled, by seeing ourselves as those who cannot fill what is full, but can only come to you with an empty hand. Oh, Father, remind us of its truth and help us not to be afraid of it. And then would you grant us the courage to walk in that way? And anyone who may have been resistant to that idea in the past, would be resistant no longer. We give you thanks for this promise. We pray for the grace to believe it more. In Jesus' name, amen.